Any good underdog will tell you fighting your way to the top means knowing how to play the game. We're Serrano and Brooke Kelly, founders of The Kelly Group and authors of the landmark book, The Game, Win Your Life in 90 Days. For us, every success has been a battle, whether it's training for the Olympics, media coaching for the White House, or having TV shows made about our book. Through our system, we transform millions of lives by helping top performers turn their biggest fears and challenges into a game they will win. We've gamified our pain and struggles, and now we're talking to high-profile guests in unscripted conversations so you can learn the game they played to reach their success. Get ready to learn, execute, and get pushed out of your comfort zone. Let's Let's get get ready ready to to rumble. rumble. So I feel particularly fortunate, and by the way, a little intimidated. Uh, I have with me today Dave Scott. And, you know, we all think about the rather high-performance life that we're all trying to lead, particularly during the current conditions. And we always look out, as you know, understanding that our entire premise is how do you gamify your life? What can you learn from the world of sports and high-performance, and how do you apply that to your life? Uh, We're here with a man who has a need for speed, but a very special spin on that. So, Mr. Scott, if you would share with us a little bit about your background, just so folks can become familiar with the world from which you come and how that relates to high performance activities that we'll talk about in people's lives. Sure. Um, So I was fortunate to have spent many, many years full-time racing at the professional level of sports cars, cars you'd recognize on the street, not Formula One, not NASCAR, but the cars you'd see on the street, um, you know, on on tracks that go left and right. And I never in a million years when I was young imagined that uh, I would ever be part of that. And in fact, it was, it seemed so far removed from how I grew up and, uh, you know, my family background that it, it didn't even occur to me beyond just, you know, a boy who loved cars and building model cars and looking at cars and pointing out cars and watching racing on TV with my dad. And so, um, and it turns out after I got out of college due to some quirks of fate, I, you know, I, I delayed going to business school. I was going to be a God of Wall Street. I ended up going to work for uh, Uncle Sam for what I thought would be a few years to mm-hmm pay off some college debt. Um, and I ended up, uh, as a, uh, as a sworn federal law enforcement agent. And, um, wow. <laughs> that's surprising. So I tell you that it, because it's, again, it's completely different than, than racing, but it, it, it segued into how I sort of stumbled onto having the ability to, to drive and to race. And so I ended up going to work for the, uh, state department version of the U S secret service. And, Wow. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a sure cure for insomnia to tell the story. But the net of it is that over time um, and due to, you know, promotions, I was fortunate to be able to end up as a uh, primary driver for some of our U.S. secretaries of state. And wow. many, many moons ago. But it turns out that those skills that 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 I was taught driving these ugly armored limousines and suburbans that were heavy and ungainly turned out to be the same skills um, Mm. that when I first went to the racetrack as a hobby. So fast forwarding through that career for 15 years and then doing some some private contract work and 
one day a buddy of mine who I knew from that world, you know, he knew I didn't golf. <laughs> and he, you know, and so I was overseas a lot. And when I come back, you know, I'd have five or six or eight or 10 weeks of time off. And he said, hey, you know, I had this little sports car at the time. He said, hey, my friends and I go to the racetrack sometime and it's just for fun. And they have volunteer instructors and all you need is a helmet. And, you know, you go as fast as you want and nobody gives you a ticket. And I thought, oh, what the hell do I have to lose? So <laughs> I went with him for a weekend. It was a car club event and it was, you know, all amateurs. It was just very safe. Uh-huh. And it turned out, long story short, that it was not only fun, but kind of a light bulb went off in my head. Mm. Uh, Wait a second. I'm listening to this this instructor in my right seat telling me what to do when I come up to the turn and how to brake and where to look. And it echoed all the things that our instructors were teaching us when I first started, you know, driving to keep these guys from getting, you know, getting kidnapped and assassinated at the high level. It was just a lot more fun on a racetrack in a nice, you know, in a little sport <laughs> than it was in this 11,000 pound Leviathan of a slow moving, loud, heavy, you know, armored SUV. And so, wow. um, and then to kind of fast forward from that, uh, kind of the learning curve went fairly vertical just because of that inadvertent prior experience. Mm. I knew it would amount to anything other than, you know, um, and uh, what I was doing at the time for Uncle Sam. And and so I got better and I had an opportunity to become one of those instructors. You know, the people who helped me, I got to help other people. And Mm. and, and I, you know, tried my hand at at what's called amateur racing, where I took the car I had and put a roll cage in it and all that stuff and raced at car club events. There was no money. It was just for fun with friends. Right. Ended up doing fairly well at that. And um, I was still doing some of this kind of high risk overseas contracting at the time. So when I'd come home, I could go to the track and, you know, it was a great hobby. And an opportunity came up um, due to some people I knew from amateur racing to try out for a uh, an existing professional team that was looking to expand uh, by adding one more dry, a sponsored driver. And so they had to try out some, anyway, it was what it was. I did well. I ended up with a one race sponsorship. Um, in other words, a company that sponsored the team was willing to bet on me for one race. So I did my first pro race and was intimidated as heck. <laughs> and as you might imagine, was very nervous. And I mean, I was looking around at all these people whose names I knew, you know, these wow. pros who thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get clobbered. And um, but I didn't and did OK and ended up nice. getting the sponsor was very happy and happy the way I, you know, I, I was a, I wasn't a kid at the time. I was in my. Gosh, what was I? My late 30s. So I was kind of a grown up and I comported myself differently than a lot of the young people who were up. And so they wanted that. Um, they were they were a company that made a, you know, a product aimed towards adults. And so they wanted somebody of a, a more mature stature. And so they sponsored me for the rest of the season. And anyway, fast forward, did very well with that and ended up with some other sponsors and other series. And before I knew it, I was able to quit all this dangerous contracting work where you you know people are shooting at you over in other countries and i got to race and get paid for it and um it was sort of you know 
everybody's seen Forrest Gump, right? And yeah. it was a Forrest Gump moment. You kind of stumble into this stuff. And I never imagined as a young man I would go to work for the federal government. And then I never imagined I would ever make a living racing. And so um was able to do that full time. It was a very busy schedule. But <laughs> so my, my mom died many years ago, unfortunately. But when she was alive, she got me a T-shirt that I still have. It's a dark blue shirt. And it just says four, four words on it. It says still plays with cars. <laughs> and she knew I was, I was the luckiest man in the world. I got to, you know, you turn your hobby into a profession. Right. And people pay you to go to the racetrack and drive these really cool cars. And um, anyway, so, uh, and then occasionally people would ask me to coach them and say, well, you know, you're blah, blah, blah. You know, that was pretty common practice where um, pro racers often were asked to coach up and comers of amateur and professional stature. So that kind of started. I didn't have much time for it. And then eventually my daughter was born and I, you know, at that time during the racing season, which was generally January to October, um, I was gone, you know, with the series I was doing and sponsor commitments and testing, I was typically gone almost, let's say two and a half to three weeks every month for nine months. Mm. And when my daughter came along, uh, what a blessing that was, but I didn't want to be an absentee dad. And, um, and so I decided to scale back the racing commitments gradually and spend more time cultivating coaching because it was typically a day or two rather than three or four days. And there was was some travel, um, but it wasn't as as arduous as it had been uh, prior. So I was able to be home more and to get to know my infant daughter. And over time, not only due to age, but due to my own personal choice, I gradually faded less and less racing and more and more coaching. And, um, and so, and I say age only because, you know, it is really a young woman's and man's game. And there really aren't a lot of sponsor opportunities for somebody at my age now mm-hmm. to reenter the full-time world. Now that my, you know, my kid is, is a teenager and is self-sufficient. And so, you know, that reality is what it is, but coaching is wonderful. I got to, I get to help a lot of other people get to drive some really cool cars. It pays great. And um, I get to be home a lot. And so that kind of brings us up to today where I'll race every once in a while, um, sometimes with clients. But mostly it's it's it, I've turned the full time racing into into uh, into kind of a, uh, a full time, mostly full time coaching gig. Well, if you don't mind my saying so, you know, I can see the connectivity between what you were doing, private contracting and part of that for the government to where you are now. You have like this uh, James Bond, Jason Bourne kind of skill set, right? <laughs> I'm like, I knew I was nervous before I talked to you, but now I'm really nervous, right? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that really attracted me in having this conversation with you was you had mentioned to me this idea of the mental game, right? Like, yes. you know, for those of us who, um, you know, only appreciate the experience from the outside, yeah. we think that it's all about the speed, it's all about the mechanics, it's all about, it's all about that. And yet, and, and yet you seem to highlight for me this, this inner game and as someone who's coaching people to uh, achieve high performance in, you know, areas of life that are important to them, 
Could you say a bit about how racing is this kind of mental game, like, like the inner psychology of racing? Sure, and I can only I can only articulate it from my own perspective. Other people may may articulate it differently. From my perspective, you know, when I was when I was learning to drive uh, at that level, as I was coming up through the amateur ranks, and I just started to race professionally. I was, I mean, I was admittedly very tense. You know, I knew the basics. I knew how to how to get the car around the corner. I knew how to downshift and upshift. I knew how to use the brakes and the steering and pay attention to what the car was telling me. And what that means in English is that the, every second as a driver, we get, we train ourselves to get input from the car about little mistakes we made and corrections as the car gets lighter as we burn off fuel all those things we have to pay attention to but i was still tense and i was focused on the mechanics of driving and over time as i watched other people who were much better than i and watched the grace with which they drove on the track and i'm kind of fighting my way around to be completely blunt i just thought you know what do i have to lose i need to relax because I was, you know, we would race. These were typically one or two hour races for the most part. They were called endurance races and they were just that. And you had to be in top physical condition. And I was wiped out at the end of it. And I couldn't figure out why because I was in very good shape. And so um, I started talking to people. I started asking my betters, you know, help me understand what you're thinking about at this play. We'd look at videos. Mm. Long and short of it is that I came to realize that, um, that yes, one needed to be in, in good physical shape, mainly because we're all wrapped up in this fire retardant material and helmets and gloves and the car is hot and it's enclosed and you know we do have driver cooling, but it still saps you from a, from a um, <clears throat> point of view, even in cool weather months. However, the vast majority of what's going on is not fight. You know, you see movies and these drivers are doing this. And yeah, it's not yeah, yeah. It at all. The best drivers are, you know, they're, they're holding the wheel with a couple of fingers so they can feel what the car's doing and they're guiding it around the corner, et cetera. And what they're doing is they're trying to not only mentally pay attention to those messages the car is giving it. What's, you know, are the tires giving way? Am I doing too much? Am I getting on the brakes too late? Um, is it squealing? Am I, you know, all the, the, it's sunny, it's hotter, it's colder, it's raining, all these things that are changing mm. and trying to anticipate, okay, how do I need to adjust what I'm doing with my hands and my feet to optimize what the car is like at this moment? But mm. they're also, they're watching, it's like three-dimensional chess. They're watching all the cars around them in their wind, windscreen they're watching the side mirrors, the rear mirrors. They're trying to pay attention to who's coming up on them and also to pay attention to where you are in the race. How much of the race is left? What position are you in? Who's closing on you? Who are you getting away from? Some of this, the team will communicate by our radios, which are in our helmets. Wow. But all this stuff has to be processed literally in real time in a way that doesn't just exhaust one in 10 minutes flat. And so when I talk about it being mental, eventually I was doing so little physically in the car that I would get out after two hours and my body felt fine. Yeah, I was sweaty. Okay, whoop-de-doo, I take a, take, a, I take a shower. 
but I was meant, if it was a challenging race, if it wasn't easy, I was mentally tired. Mm. And, you know, people would want to have conversations or interviews and it was all you could do to get five words out that didn't say, I want to thank my sponsor, you know, sounds like you're drunk. And right. you know, I'm trying to make it make light of it. But the, the fact of the matter is that paying attention to all these things and to what the car is doing and mm. to what I'm doing to the car and whether I'm doing it right. And, you know, the typical self-critique that type A people throw ourselves into every moment, all this stuff occupies about 90% of the headspace and the physical stuff. It's not twitchy. It's not, yeah, you have to pay attention because other drivers do stupid things just like in traffic. It's, it's actually safer than traffic, but, um, mm. but, and you have to be able to react if something happens. I mean, you, you, tire goes flat or there's oil on the track. You, you need to be responsive, but it's not the way it's portrayed. Mm. It's not the way I thought it was that it's all just this quick twitch adrenaline rush. I figured if, if I felt my adrenaline, I knew in 20 minutes I'd be exhausted. So I had to control my breathing and I know others do the same thing. I had to control my respiration Mm. I had to manage the energy that I had. And, you know, we typically would have a drink bottle on the car, but you didn't want to chug it in the first 10 minutes because either you'd expand or you'd have to go to the bathroom. Well, that's impossible. And mm. so everything was about measure. And so earlier I mentioned patience. Well, not only did patience come into play as to, okay, I have an hour and a half race. I need to measure how fast I'm driving. I need mm. to measure how quickly I burn off fuel. I need to measure how intensely I'm going to try to work my way through the field based on the length of the race so I don't burn out the car and myself. And I also need to be patient to let other people ahead of me fail. <laughs> now that, I have to say that, that, that to me, like I'm listening to this, seeing like so much translation to everyday life. It's like, you know, we have all these inputs and distractions, they're distractions for us, right? And we lose touch with the sensitivity of the now and being able to be fully present of what we're doing. But I have to admit, you really hit me really hard with that one. Allowing the people in front of you to fail, say more about that. Well, it sounds harsh to put it in those words, but the, 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 the final third of the mental game, so I've told you one third, which is kind of paying attention on what the car is doing. And right. we've got enough of it left to finish the race. Because, you know, there's an old cliche in racing. To finish first, first you must finish. <laughs> that, that's part one is paying attention to the car. Part two is yeah. kind of paying attention to the three-dimensional chess match of people passing and going in and getting tires and all the stuff going on. Part three is, okay, there's, there are two cars ahead of me that are quicker, and I can't really catch them in a straight line, either due to my own driving or my car or both. But I'm going to pay attention to where they make mistakes and where they excel and try to get myself, for instance, closer to them at a place where I've seen them consistently make mistakes. So perhaps I can get in there in their mirror, in their mind and force a small mistake. And so mm. or if that's not possible, just put enough pressure on them from behind that they consume their car at a quicker rate than I'm consuming mine, meaning they, they, they have to burn more fuel to stay ahead of me because they see me in the mirrors. They have to use more tires, use more brake pad. And eventually that 
it doesn't, it, you know, it's not infinite. And, right. and so when I say, you know, let other people fail, it's sometimes, you know, you think, okay, I'm a racer. I need to charge to the front. I need, I need to be right. 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 And, and that, that's true, but it doesn't have to happen this minute. And sometimes, I mean, there's a, there's a race that I've run many times uh, called the, the uh, uh, Rolex 24 hour race at Daytona. So it's a, it's the premier sports car race in North America. Mm-hmm. It's all the best. It's literally a 24 hour race. It's teams of drivers who take turns and sleep and drive. And the car that does the most laps wins. Mm. And so you have to let other folks do what they're going to do and not try to persuade them out of overdriving, consuming fuel, making mistakes, hitting things. Just let them do it. And so that's what I mean is just be patient enough to go, okay. That, that car, the yellow car, in turn four, every time going too fast in, and then the car sliding. Mm. I'm just going to be right on them in turn four every time, because eventually either they're going to go off the track or they're going to use up their tires and the tires don't want to turn because they've been sliding so much. Mm. And so that's what I mean by you know letting the old the old adage is if. People are going to tell you who they are. Don't try to talk them out of it. And so on the track, who they are, often we know them, but oftentimes the habits we see, they're going to repeat lap after lap after lap. And if we just let them do the bad ones and try to minimize the the things that they're doing well that are better than what I'm doing, oftentimes we can get ahead of them without really having to work hard. It's just by being there. You know, I'm sure that just like me, the audience can see so many parallels, for example, in the world of business. I know you said that early on you were planning on being, you know, a kingpin of Wall Street. Psychology, though, that I'm hearing from you, um, you know, uh, is very much the psychology that one might hear, for example, on Wall Street or in businesses where you're you know, uh, have lots of competitors and sometimes they may seem to be ahead of you. Uh, but as you said, you know, uh, they, they are, are, you can see things that, that you wouldn't appreciate by being somewhat behind that can actually give the advantage to getting ahead. You know, so it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear this world because, you know, here we are talking about in theory, racetrack, cars, drivers, and yet everything that you say to me, I can also hear that as things that I'm doing or not doing in life. Um, Do you ever find that when you're coaching people in racing, um, that you find yourself uh, having conversations with them that clearly transcend the mechanics and the activity of the moment? Because part of what you're dealing with is this person's own personal inclinations, like you said, to do too much, to try and control too much. Do you find yourself being uh, backed into those conversations or, or do you just simply focus on the driving and use that as a way to help the person make that adjustment? I'm just curious, what's your approach? I mean, it, it, it's a great question. It is situational. You have to forgive me. I have a pet that just jumped to my lap. There we go. It is situational. I mean, one of the one of the challenges of coaching, uh, and probably similar to what you do, is that it, it's it's not about how fast of a driver I am. Mm-hmm. It's about how I can read what the person is doing, 
read their communication style, and then articulate to them in clear language that's respectful and encouraging, but language that they're going to understand the way they input things very quickly. Because frankly, if I'm riding in the car with them on a racetrack on a practice day, my life is in their hands. And so, um, and so sometimes, right. yes, the answer to your question, sometimes the, the conversation is more than just, oh, get on the brakes here, turn in. And oftentimes the, the most common, uh, like let's say 20,000 foot view comments that I will make with a client in a car relate to where they're looking at every given moment. And, and I'll come back to that in a second. And they're breathing. And so first one, where they're looking, um, you know, one of the things I learned uh, when I was learning how to drive on the track with my volunteer instructor is um, you know, look where you want to go, not where you are. When we're in traffic, you know, we come up to a, a stop line or a stop sign. What are we we're looking at? We're looking at our hood. We're looking at the taillights, the car in front of us because we don't want to hit them. Right. But if we're, if we're on a racetrack and we're looking where we are, that's where we're going to go. We're not going to end up making the corner. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're trained to come up to a corner, you turn your head and look, and that's where the arms naturally follow. It's weird that it mm -hmm. works. Um, and so one of the exercises I practice with folks to get them to relax on track and to get them to their level of performance that they're capable of is to get them to start looking farther ahead sooner. And a little bit of a suspension of disbelief because, you know, our fear is, oh, well, but if I'm looking way down there, Dave, I'm, I, what if I go off track here? Right. And so you build up the pace and it, invariably they go, oh, that was easy. And, I, and all of a sudden you can see their body language relax and I can see it in the tension of their hands and their neck and their eyes, their pupils and all that stuff. And so that's that's a big, a big picture uh, concept that has really nothing to do with where we're shifting gears, et cetera. The other one I said was breathing. And um, oftentimes what a lot of people do, uh, even at the very high levels, is they'll inadvertently hold the breath. They're mm. tense, they're stressed, or they just are not thinking about it. And because right. it's mostly a mental sport, obviously our brains need a lot of oxygen. And the more we hold our breath, the more tense we are, our blood pressure goes up, we sweat more, we make mistakes, we get fatigued sooner. And so I start with people to say, you know, every time we get on a straightaway, come out of a corner, whatever you're doing, shifting gears, blah, 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 it doesn't matter how fast you're going. Take a couple of slow in, slow out, and then just have them relax their hands to get their muscles in the neck, in the, the upper torso, to just kind of relax and oxygenate the brain. And it's amazing how after a couple of minutes of doing that, people do it, start to do it automatically. But again, it changes the dynamic of the body language and their level of, of physical tension versus relaxation and allows them to channel all that energy into the mental game rather than, oh my God, I've got a corner coming up. Am I going to make it blah, 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 all the things that go through our minds because of self-preservation. Well, I know that we we're about to wrap. I have to say, you know, um, this is probably, if I were just to, you know, be very transparent with you, this is probably the quietest I've actually been in a session like this. <laughs> I'm just fascinated, you know? It's like, I just see that, and again, you know, I coach, uh, you know, high-performing individuals, 
that's how you and I met, right? And just, you know, great human beings, but who are really operating at a very high level in life. And there are just so many things that you've said that clearly relate to much more than racing. Uh, as a matter of fact, as you were talking, I couldn't help but check in. I was like, am I breathing kind of shallow? <laughs> am I? <laughs> am I, all right? I mean, you know, yeah. It, it, it is it is very common and it's amazing the, the impact it can have on on our our, our sense of well-being yeah well I, I'm gonna ask those individuals listening to just take a look at a couple of the really key concepts that we got that you know often we take a look at the mistakes that we've made in life Dave and it's because we weren't looking far enough down the road we weren't anticipating what could happen that we were so tense in the present moment that we were burning up a lot of brake pads, burning up a lot of rubber, and not really allowing ourselves to to glide and to uh, uh, be relaxed as we were going through that journey. And as you said, you know, there's a level of patience that's uh, needed to perform at these higher levels. So I really want to thank you for so many great lessons. Uh, I look forward to any future opportunity that we have to dialogue with you. And I hope for those of you listening and those of you watching that you walk away as I do, uh, ready to go another lap, but perhaps do it uh, a little bit better. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your audience. Awesome. Appreciate you. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.